Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Forrest Whitaker is the last king of Repo Men. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, the clear king here of Scotland, obviously me, Thomas Mariani. And uh, I should say that um, Adam isn't here this week. We've had a lot of scheduling conflicts with this particular episode, uh, so he wasn't able to join us for this one. But in his stead, we have one of our returning favorites, a buddy of mine uh, for many years now, Tori DePina. Tori, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be back. Yeah, honestly, I'm surprised you're here considering uh, you just had uh, your organs taken out of you because you were late on those payments, but you're still soldiering on, this guy being just covered in blood and gore. Thank God for the black market. <laughs> yes, for sure. But uh, we are here today uh, to discuss uh, Mr. Forrest Whitaker, which was shout out to our patrons, patreon.com slash DEDBpod. More on them later. Because uh, w- uh, this kind of tied into the movie uh, Big George Foreman, which would have recently opened. Uh, that does not feel like a real movie every time I see a trailer. It's playing now. And I'm still just like, is this like a fake movie? If I were to get a ticket for it, it would just be like a fooled you would fo- show up for two hours. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still in disbelief. Every time I see that trailer, it just, I don't know if it's like a mad TV sketch or, or whatnot, but no, it's its something serious, and uh, it's got Forrest Whitaker in it. Hey. Yes, it does have Forrest Whitaker, who is very interesting, because I feel like Forrest Whitaker is one of those guys where he has the career very much of, like, a character actor. He kind of has that, like, the sort of workman ability where, like, he'll do a lot of different projects, especially as of late, how many, like, weird, like, action movies that he'll just uh, pop up in, like, in Taken 3 and shit like that. Uh, But at the same time, he has the gravitas and that kind of, like, respectability to where everyone still knows his name. He still is, like, well-known and respected as just an amazing actor in his own right. Yeah, absolutely. I always go back to kind of how he kind of terrified me as a kid in in, in movies like uh, Jason's Lyric, which he's, like, you know, his character he plays is kind of like the catalyst for the trauma, if you will, of that movie. But uh, but yeah, no, he's a guy who's managed to transcend that label of quote unquote character acting or character actor and has, you know, quite a respectable career. I mean, more than respectable career. He's got a best actor uh, Oscar on a shelf somewhere. Yeah, especially like I I watched one of those, you know, um, actor goes through all their iconic roles videos that was on there for Forrest Whitaker. And so fascinating how like despite how like very big and verbose he can be as an actor he's a very quiet soft-spoken guy and he's just very much into the craft of it all and you can see that all the way back from like when he made his debut and stuff like fast times at ridgemont high and then moving forward even like as young as he was there it feels like he's had that sort of consistent jovial spirit to him but at the same time when he needs to be like you know full of remorse and regret it really uh, feels palpable 
you see it in with the two movies we've seen tonight. Yeah, which we should uh, get into. So uh, at the end of our previous uh, regular episode, uh, we ended up picking, uh, you know, our good pick and our bad pick as we usually do. And uh, we ended up with uh, my good pick of The Last King of Scotland and Adam's bad pick of Repo Men. So we'll go ahead and get into that now first with The Last King of Scotland. How many doctors are there here? Well, there's me, and uh, now there's you. Good morning, Dr. Garrigan. The president wants to see you. You are British. Well, I'm Scottish. Scottish? Why didn't you say so? (laughs) This is the sort of man a president needs around him. You want me to be your physician? What do you need is to have some fun. You are very naughty. Me? (laughs) Dr. Garrigan, it's four in the morning. They've taken my passport. I have to go home now. You cannot. You are like my own son. And you have grossly offended your father. So The Last King of Scotland came out uh, September 27th, 2006, uh, from director Kevin MacDonald, and uh, is based on the uh, novel by uh, Giles Foden, which we should note, despite the fact that this is a technical true story in terms of, obviously, this is the movie where Forrest Whitaker portrayed Idi Amin, and got his uh, Best Actor Oscar that you mentioned earlier, Tori. Um, it is still very much, uh, you know, loose in terms of, like, uh, certain elements of it. Particularly, uh, the the person who no one really talks about with this movie, who, despite him being technically the lead character of James McAvoy, is, like, kind of based on a couple of real people, like, different, like, doctors and stuff who were around Idi Amin in his circle, um, but uh, is not really a real specific person. Which, um, I'll just say, as someone who, like, I picked this, but I had not seen it before, only just on the basis of, obviously, like, Forrest Whitaker won his Oscar for this movie, and I was very curious to finally see it, and I think it's a real testament to Whitaker, whose performance is amazing, and I get why he won, uh, especially because I think he is single-handedly turns this movie over the edge from, like, kind of being bad Oscar bait, because aside from him... Um, there's a lot of fucking dumb, stupid shit in this movie I really don't like. <laughs> Same, because I actually hadn't seen the film until this week. Um, I know my parents had watched it when um, it was available for like rental. This, so this might have been like late 06, maybe early to mid 2007. And uh, I remember walking through and seeing the scene with the hooks, but that was pretty much it. Um, and obviously, you know, the fact that he won his Oscar. Uh, that year as well, which I think he beat uh, DiCaprio for Blood Diamond, amongst others. I'm with you as far as like the film itself. I feel he he and McAvoy. I actually I would argue that the actors in general are the what carry this movie because everything else is kind of just there, especially from like a narrative structure. There's nothing really much there except you're kind of just following one man's descent into as a result of his extremely rash and bad decision making, uh, and you know striking up a, a, a fiendship, if you will, with uh, with Idi Amin. Yeah, by the way, other nominees that Whitaker beat were Leonardo DiCaprio for Blood Diamond, as you mentioned, but also Ryan Gosling for Half Nelson, yes. Peter O'Toole for Venus, and Will Smith for The Pursuit of Happiness. The first time he got nominated. Well, no, not the first time, because there was Ali was the first oh, that's time. right. He did get nominated for Ali. Yeah, absolutely. Right, yes, but this was, you know, during that time where he's like, oh man, I really want to win an Oscar, and he did. 
in a very interesting way. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, to go back to at least the movie itself, I agree with you that all of the actors are pretty committed, where aside from Whitaker, who we'll expound upon a bit later, um, I mean, McAvoy, this is pretty early in his career. This is, like, just after he played Mr. Tumnus in Chronicles of Narnia, but it was before even, like, Wanted or any of the X-Men movies or Split, any of that stuff. And I think he's a very talented actor. I just think that he's definitely saddled with just the biggest problem of this movie, which is just the fact that we mainly, like I mentioned earlier, like, we start off with... Uh, James McAvoy, who plays the the Scottish character here, uh, Dr. Nicholas Garrigan, as he randomly decides, like, you know, I, I'm tired of being in Scotland in the suburbs, I want to go somewhere else, and he randomly selects Uganda, which just leads him to go over to Uganda at this point in, like, the 70s, and he initially is with Gillian Anderson, who her and her husband are part of, like, a, you know, sort of medical uh, tent for, like, the citizens of Uganda, but then he ends up uh, having a chance meeting with Idi Amin, and it ends up kind of being roped into his circle. And I'll just say, especially, like, that first, I don't know, 20 minutes with, like, the almost will-they-won't-they they affair thing with Gillian Anderson, I was really just like, what, did this is what this movie's about? Really? Like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Go back to Forrest Whitaker, and we eventually do. But centering the whole thing on him, it's that classic, like, Oscar bait you think, oh, we can't focus this story on, say, like, an actual, like, Ugandan character or even, like, a foreigner who's a black guy. We have to have the key focus of this white dude who is not really interesting at all as a character. I mean, from what I gathered from the beginning of this movie, uh, I'm angry at my dad because he doesn't completely accept my degree or whatever my line of work, even though we're basically in the same line of work. Um, he wants to fuck everything. I mean, there's that, <laughs> to be fair. To be very blunt, I mean, literally opens with that. Uh, and then to the thing with Gillian Anderson, which went fucking nowhere, like to say the least. Hey, hey, she showed up on a bus later and he was like, hey, remember me, Gillian Anderson? And she's like, oh, fuck you, get away from oh, me, man. and that's it. I know I shouldn't have, like, I don't know if, like, it was, it was like, the proper response was for me to laugh at that scene, but I'm just kind of laughing my ass off, kind of like, ah, you stupid fucking... I, 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 it's hard for me to really feel for this character at all in this movie, and the fact that they decide to... And it's not even Jay's McAvoy's fault. His performance is, is really fucking good. It was definitely not on par with Whitaker's, but obviously the close second compared to, um, uh, you know, and I would say Kerry Washington third. It's just like I'm watching this the entire time, and I'm thinking to myself, man, it's like, I'm, I'm kind of with the racist British guy, and I don't want to be with the racist British guy for obvious reasons but he's not wrong when he kind of throws it right back in Jay's McAvoy's face when they have a little conversation where he's like oh now I need to go and get out of here I was like yeah I mean you were kind of living like you know enjoying this this power you were getting with being you know idiom means pretty much doctor confidant whatever you want to call it and now you know the it started to bite you in the ass a little bit and now all of a sudden it's like oh no now I need to leave now I need to go and it's just like I never really I wish they gave us a character, one that we could give a shit about, like, to follow in this story. Honestly, like, this whole movie, like, especially when, when he ended up showing up later, like, uh, working with McAvoy, I was like, oh, wait, David Oyelowo. Why didn't we just follow, like, David Oyelowo's character <laughs> instead of fucking McAvoy? Yeah, and he ends up being, unfortunately, he ends up being, I, I hate this shit. This is, this is exactly why I didn't even like movies that came around this time that were, you know, use that, you know, Africa, like making these films in Africa, like Blood Diamond, I have issues with Blood Diamond, and I ended up having similar issues with this movie. It's just so Hollywood, you know what I mean? I know that sounds really half-assed to like have that be a criticism, but it's just like they didn't really feel like the film itself had any soul 
except when Forrest Whitaker is on the screen. Like he is the soul of this movie. He's the heart and soul of this movie. You feel it when he's being charming. You feel it when he's being psychotic. You feel it when he's being paranoid, you know, every which way, like he carries this film pretty much on his back the entirety for the two hours you're watching this. It's this weird thing where the director, Kevin McDonald, is a guy who, he came from documentaries originally. This is his first narrative feature. And I think, like, his shooting style, which feels very similar to, like, a lot of the sort of shooting style for, like, serious, dramatic movies around this time, which is to say, it kind of looks like that you wouldn't steal a VHS PSA. (laughs) You wouldn't steal a DVD. (laughs) The kind of thing with, like, the... The weird, like, contrast and the, like, different, like, the grain and stuff that's put all over for, like, the digital photography. It feels like it's trying to be a bit more, you know, like, oh, we're having this uh, sort of grounded documentary aesthetic. But then the screenplay constantly betrays that with a lot of the different twists and turns, particularly my big thing. The point where I was really just like, oh, God, I don't know if I'm going to like this fucking movie. When James McAvoy and Carrie Washington fuck, I was like deeply upset just like no what wait what this doesn't make any fucking sense why is this happening yes it should be like a thing where it's like you should probably start to get out of here but it's like why did we need what what why why was the sex scene necessary like what was the whole point was it just just give them a love interest because I mean, he didn't really like earn any of like those moments. It was kind of just like Carrie Washington gets treated just like uh, the actress in the beginning of the movie and what almost happened to, you know, Gillian, uh, Gillian Anderson. It felt like more of like an object or a prop or something like that or a plot device as opposed to like her own character. I don't know. I mean, you know, Carrie Washington saw, you know, James McAvoy help out her kid who was having a seizure and she's instantly just like, I want to fuck. And it's like, really? That's that's that- it. It's exactly. Like I was even doing stuff where I was trying to look in like stuff about her character historically. Um, the only thing I could really find was uh, something from her son, who's kind of a nut job himself. If you ever like look deep into his, you know, his Facebook page that I, I was able to find out of it. But like he said that like the portrayal, obviously the portrayal wasn't really accurate to what she was as a person or uh, whatsoever. I mean, she was heavily religious she was really involved in trying to bring progress to, you know, to, Inga, to Uganda as like, a, as far as like updating with trying to get better health care, trying to have like, you know, better connections with people like, like religiously. She was very spiritual. None of those things that you get from Carrie Washington's portrayal in this movie or how they wrote Carrie Washington's portrayal in this movie. It's obviously not her fault. She's just doing her job. Yeah. Especially <laughs> when you find out like the story of like Kay Amin and how she actually died was like she was pregnant from an affair. And then it was a Ugandan physician who had, they, she had sex with. And then he ended up trying to give her an abortion that ended up being botched and she died that way. Um, and then he committed suicide, which is a bit more of like a tragic, upsetting story that had to happen. Uh, though the element that is true is admittingly an effective, upsetting moment uh, when James McAvoy discovers her body and how it's been returned and stitched together. That is deeply unsettling in a way that I think is authentic. And I think also works in like that sort of the style actually benefits that particular moment. I didn't expect it to be that graphic, honestly, but um, I do actually to go back to like when my parents were watching it, I do remember my dad having quite a visceral reaction to the film. Um, And he reacted highly at that scene. He was just like, Oh no, no, I can't do this like kind of reaction. And when I finally see it, obviously it's like, Oh, I understand now (laughs) I get where he was coming from, you know, (laughs) but uh it's a very um, man, especially considering the history of 
like hey i mean in real life I, it really just chilled me like it really like threw me off when i saw that i was like i did not expect that i was like oh my goodness yeah yeah for sure it's very upsetting and a lot of that i think obviously comes from we should talk further whitaker in this movie despite like all these issues that we clearly have with what is around him in this movie it is such an enigmatic performance from like the moment he does that speech when we first see him instantaneously you're like oh i get why this guy is like sort of like a populist leader to where it's just like yep that guy like he's the classic like oh i want to hang out with that political leader that means i'm immediately like behind him and love everything about him and then as we learn more and more about like his own paranoias and his history and everything it's just like oh god this guy is like a human being in the way that you were initially attracted to and then as you find him more, it's like, oh, you're a deeply fucked up, upsetting person who went through a lot of shit and is now is taking down everybody who you find to have any kind of paranoia about. It's it's a genuinely amazing performance that 100% I get why he won the Oscar for it. Oh, absolutely. Like I said before, him being charming, him being paranoid, him being downright a bastard, like an evil son of a bitch, a despot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Every single scene that he is in, he does not, it's nothing is wasted with him. Stuff is wasted with the majority of the cast uh, in regards to this film, as far as like their characters. Uh, we mentioned the uh, the doctor from before. I, I I just dropped his name. You had just said his name earlier. David Yellow, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Exactly. Absolutely. Like even him. Um, you know what a what a waste. And I just I just didn't like how the whole sacrifice thing for him to let James McAvoy leave. I just that never sat right with me. Like as a film, like like as as a narrative like as i'm watching this you know what i mean i remember seeing that clip like uh uh like months ago because it just happened to be playing at my job's break room it was playing uh uncut if you uh, if you could believe that uh but what a fun break room <laughs> just like oh man exhausting time let me turn on the tube yeah on, we need to watch the girl ask king of scotland on stars yeah yeah but um and it was just like i was just like wait really that's how he gets and it's just like i i, I hate the you know, I hate like the white savior shit that like they do with DiCaprio and Blood Diamond. And I felt like it was like a reverse that when it came to this. And it's just like, it's just shit like that that just took me out of it. Well, especially when it's upsetting because like there's a bit of commentary they kind of slide in very last minute during like that scene and last scene between McAvoy and Whitaker where they do talk about just like, oh, you thought you, a white guy, could like come around and play with like the natives in Uganda and you didn't think that like this was going to like end up with some shit happening. And then even, oh, Yellow even speaks about like, oh, they'll believe you because you're white. And it's like, oh, okay, you're starting to kind of actually address the major problem of this movie two hours in and we're done and it's over. <laughs> so it's like, oh, great, great. <laughs> We addressed the elephant in the room, but, uh, you know, hey, listen, it might have taken us two hours to get to this point, but, you know, you had a lot of fun along the way, right? And I was just like, no, okay. It's about the friends we made along the way. It's about the fiends. Yeah, exactly. The fiends we made along the way. Um, <laughs> oh, man, I just, I, I, is it bad that when I saw that Kerry Washington scene, I just immediately thought of that Simpsons clip where it's Dr. Nick going, oh, Mr. McGreg with a leg for an arm <laughs> for and an, an arm, arm for an arm. arm. <laughs> and I was just like, dude, because it was so out of that movie by that point, I was just, I wasn't with it at that point because it was just so much filler and following McAvoy around where it's just basically like i feel like the film's telling me oh you should sympathize with him right he clearly went over his head i was like yeah but this isn't a child okay this is an adult this is a guy who took the hippocratic oath this is a man who went through the medical field he knows what right and wrong is 
You know what I mean? Like he did this all for like the adventure. He wanted the feeling of adventure or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, at that point with as bad of a decision-making as he made, I mean, he might as well have just went to Canada <laughs> instead of, if, instead of Uganda. Especially when like, he's supposed to be like our audience surrogate. I don't know for like a laundry list of reasons. He is not my surrogate. Fuck that guy. <laughs> I don't, I don't want him to like represent me going to Uganda <laughs> and just like, Oh, I'm here for like the adventure. And it's like, Okay, man. <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, the amount of times that he gets laid in this movie that he does not even have to put in work for. This is like literally like the the the, the easiest, whitest journey you could think of for such a character. And it's like, this is your avatar. He's like, uh, the fuck he is? No, he's not. Absolutely not. I'm not with him. <laughs> I am not. Does not represent me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness oh boy <laughs> um, but, but to get back to the Whitaker of it all I'm, I'm curious like what would you say is sort of like your favorite sort of standout moment for Whitaker in this movie I, I wish I, I could just say yes honestly because from from the opening speech to you know him waiting for you know when McAvoy first meets him and he has like his, his you know his little busted paw or whatever um you know, even even down to the scenes that like I thought I was going to roll my eyes at, like, you know, the the, the flatulent scene, you know, to, to put it lightly. Um, but I would honestly say the one that really showed the 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 best range, which is kind of a weird scene is when they when he's staring at him after they lift up McAvoy with the torture hooks on his chest and shit. And like he's staring there and then like when he starts to look down and like, you can see like the slight tear in his eye as he starts to kind of turn away. And you don't know. It's like, wait, does he feel bad because he really felt a connection with this guy? And now he's watching him get tortured and it wasn't as satisfying as it was, you know, seeing his enemies get killed or some shit. And it's just like a weird moment where this monster is like starting to show some sort of sorrow. But it's also like you're you're eating mean. So but but it's like the fact that I'm getting that I'm being made to feel this way in the moment watching this scene is like a testament to how good Forrest Whitaker is in this movie, how great Forrest Whitaker is in this movie. It's definitely one of the greatest performances ever captured on screen. Just, you know, wish the movie could match that. Well, especially when I, I liked how um, Giles Foden talked about in terms of like how he portrayed Amin in his book as sort of like a comparison to like Macbeth. And I think for in regards to like Whitaker's character, it does kind of feel like when like if you actually read any Shakespeare playing based on a real life figure and compare it to the real life figure, uh, there's a lot of varying different things that like conflict with history. But at the same time, you get a full sense of at least like this sort of character and how you can see how this person would exist. This sort of larger than life figure where like but prior to this, honestly, like my own ignorance, I only knew like sort of vague things like that Idi Amin like allegedly was a cannibal and all that other stuff. Sort of like what I had seen in basically like sort of pop culture and like historical like vagaries that I'd learned through, you know, the public school system in America. What I like about the way that like Whitaker portrays him is there's so much of like the that great thing when like an actor or or a storyteller and like anything is focusing on a villain and they totally get the villain's perspective in like a complete way where you he thinks that he's right and I think that's why like my favorite scene is the bit after he forces like all the the Asian communities out of Uganda and then he's talking to James McAvoy about like why didn't you convince me harder to not do that because he sees the repercussions and it's not. A case of like, oh, I did something wrong and I should learn from this. It's no, I have these trusted advisors around me who I felt I could trust and they didn't advise me correctly. 
that really just summarizes beautifully what he's doing in this movie. We're just like, oh, he has his logic that he thinks like this is how it should go. And it's like, no, dude, everything's just like falling the fuck apart around you. And it's your fault, but you have to find someone else to blame. But it feels so human and so like layered in that way where I'm just like, this is such, that's why I think he's such a fascinating sort of portrayal of like a villainous character and why I think Whitaker is like really the only person that could have like portrayed all of that. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean like that, that scene you spoke about, he's like, Oh, you should have, uh, you know, persuaded me better. I was like, I feel like this is like a, I feel like I'm at my job right now and a supervisor is trying to pin the blame up to me, especially when that supervisor like an hour ago was like 100% uh, 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 confident and 100% sure that I had made the right decision by kicking out all the Asians out of my country with absolutely with, there should be this is a perfect plan I, I, I don't know Tor that was a boneheaded move of you how dare you do that <laughs> oh yeah exactly it's like you should have you should have uh, what, what's the thing where it's like damn it <laughs> like you just said actually it's um he he brings all that to life in a way that I feel like only Forrest Whitaker could nobody else could have brought in that um could have could have brought in that life out of that character the way he did yeah and i think it just really shows the the variety uh and the range of him as an actor where you get like the cuddlier scenes that you mentioned like the sort of like two bros hanging out scenes where you're kind of fooled into like oh you know him and mcavoy they're just dudes being dudes but you at the same time it's like you mentioned you kind of feel that sympathy for him i think it's because whitaker just whitaker's face is so beautifully like kind in a weird way and like you're immediately invited just like oh this guy wouldn't hurt me he's like a big teddy bear he wouldn't do anything to me but then that teddy bear has like a knife in its paw and it fucking starts stabbing people and it's like oh no what no not teddy not teddy whitaker why would you ever do this i can't believe it like that sort of betrayal you feel that betrayal along with mcavoy and then the way that the audience sort of get thing that's the only time it works where you feel that same betrayal with him in a way that's like very authentic. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> Teddy Bear. I don't know. I've seen. <laughs> I mentioned earlier about the movie Jason's lyric, and I was like, no, I've seen him portray Mad Dog. Okay, that that's why the entire time when I'm watching these scenes where he's being like jovial and happy, and it's like it's just two bros hanging out. I was like, no, it is not two bros hanging out. I have seen this play out before. I have that immediate feeling in my gut that something terrible, dark. And horrifying is around the corner. I will not enjoy these moments. That's the thing with this film. It just made me like on edge the entire time. Like, I don't trust shit that's going on right now. You, I don't care how good you are, Forrest Whitaker. I know what's around that corner. And it is, uh, uh, it, it's awful <laughs> to say the least. And I guess, was there anything else besides sort of like Whitaker and like the actors that you liked about the movie? Would you say that this was at all like a decent good pick because of those elements? Or is there anything else that kind of like at least like caught your eye and didn't like lull you into a sense of like what the fuck's happening. <laughs> I mean, it's shot beautifully. I mean, to say the least, I mean, um, there was like a, like, as far as like that kind of that yellowish like hue I mean, or whatever, I kind of felt like I was watching a Tony Scott film without the, the quick cuts or the obnoxiously, you know, fucking put in your face quick cuts. Cause it looks beautiful. Like the way it was shot was beautiful and almost kind of like, the because you mentioned this guy was a documentarian i haven't seen any other films by this guy whatsoever i know he made state of play i never saw state of play those kind of like foreign policy 
Middle Eastern type movies about America's involvement and shit kind of wore me out by the time rendition came out and I was like 16. So <laughs> it's like, nah, I'm good. But when it, when it comes down to like how it shot, I mean, it looks beautiful. I mean, it kind of has like that yellowishness you saw in movies like traffic as far as like from a technical standpoint, that's kind of like really what I like could say is like, you know, great cinematography. Um, Cause I, I really don't think the script was there. I really don't think the storytelling was there. I think it was just, um, it was, this is an actor's movie. This is like, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's a bad, it's got like a bad connotation to it, but it, it's Oscar bait. It just happens to be high quality Oscar bait because of the, the caliber of actor involved. Yeah, I would say there's a couple of moments where I think, particularly whenever you see like Idi Amin amongst like the you know the the regular folks in Uganda, I I felt that kind of like oh this is where the authentic documentarian stuff works. Like there's a bit where there's a bunch of kids who are like playing ball outside and Idi Amin just like goes up to him and they start like punching his like his hands that he has up and stuff like that. Those are the moments where I kind of felt like oh this feels like I'm just sort of like in the middle of this particular place in time and it feels like pretty authentic. Um, and even, like, when you have certain, like, moments where it gets, like, grisly, like, particularly the scene where, like, he has all those guys, like, captured and lined up and they're, like, horribly murdered, I think is one of the better examples where that kind of Tony Scott-ism for, I think, works, because I think a lot of this, I agree with you, has the flares of, like, a Tony Scott, but not as much of, like, the actual stylistic integrity of a Tony Scott, quite frankly. I could imagine, I think a Tony Scott version of this movie would be probably much more engaging and fascinating um but yeah i think uh you know we got a whole other movie to talk about so let's go into our final thoughts here tori any final lingering thoughts on lasting scotland eh, nothing more than what i've already uh what's already been said um it's a decent movie carried by a magnificent performance by a magnificent actor um so an oscar film but <laughs> you know what i mean but uh uh you know but other than that uh, i'm glad to have finally saw it you know, finally kind of crossed that one off the uh, off the old bucket list of films, if you will. Um, but yeah, I, I, I it's a, it was, you know, decent movie, magnificent performance, like I just said. So, yeah, like I said earlier, I think the, the big thing I want to emphasize is this is the true power of Whitaker is his ability to like skirt this over into being a movie I somehow liked uh, because it has all of, like the earmarks of like a bad Oscar bait movie that I would, like, normally just say, like, oh, fuck this shit, I'm glad it's kind of been forgotten to history, but this is one of those rare examples where, like, oh, the lead performance actually carries it, because some people try and do that all the time with, like, movies where, especially where it tends to be, like, oh, the one actor won his award, but everything else wasn't really won, like, I just recently watched Sense of a Woman, the Al Pacino movie, um, and a lot of people say, like, oh, that movie might be flawed, but Al Pacino's performance is so great in it, and I'm just gonna say here, no, uh, that movie fucking sucks, and it's not a great Pacino performance. It does not carry that dumb movie over into being anything, like, watchable to me. As opposed to, like, Last King of Scotland, I think that's very much the case with Whitaker's performance. He's, like, so fascinating, enigmatic, and I get why he was sort of, like, the guy who not only won the Oscar, but that entire award season, he was just racking up, like, Golden Globe, BAFTA, like, all that shit. And it totally made sense why he kind of steamrolled. Because it's an undeniable performance, and, you know, even if we had to get it in this uh, not- quite that good package i'm at least glad this performance at least was able to come out of uh, such a flawed overall product uh but let's go ahead and get into our bad movie here with repo men it's compact it's safe it's comfortable everything you want in a new liver the price seven hundred fifty six thousand dollars let me just reassure you that our credit department will find a plan that fits your lifestyle he'll sign it 
everybody signs it. But what they don't tell you is if you can't pay the bills, some union man will break into your house and reclaim our property. I can pay. Sorry, that's not my department. My name's Remy. That's my best friend, Jake. We grew up together, and now we work together. Yeah, job's a job. We're always gonna be repo. You're a very lucky man, you know that? What you're looking at here is the new heart module, top of the line. Get it out. No time at all, you're gonna be back on your game. You're gonna be knocking them back. You've done this a thousand times. What is wrong with you? Falling behind on payments. Your repo, they'll come for you too. Who do you think Frank's gonna send after me? Maybe me. Repo man. So uh, Repo Men came out March 19th, 2010 uh, from director Miguel Sapochnik uh, and is uh, based on the novel The Reposition Mambo, uh, which at least is like the source material that was it was written by one of the two screenwriters, Eric Garcia, though a lot of people kind of at the time and I even remember like when this was coming out, I hadn't seen this before, but when it was coming out, I kind of was like, wait, didn't we just kind of do that with Repo the Genetic Opera? which had been a movie that came out two years prior, but then even then had been a stage show for, like, about a decade prior to that. Um, And, you know, a lot of people kind of had the weird comparisons and were just like, oh, we're just ripping this off and doing it in a very, like, bizarre, uninteresting way. And, uh, Tori, uh, do you agree with that sentiment about Repo Man? Because, you know, whenever you come on the show, you tend to be the positive light when we talk about bad movies. You're like, I don't know, guys, it wasn't that bad. Uh, Was this that bad? Uh, yeah, this actually might have been the first time I've I've been on this show where it's a bad movie that I've actually like fucking hated. Um, man, uh, 2010 was like a very active year for me, like film wise. Um, you know, like you and I were both on spill. And I remember like kind of before life kind of hit me in the face and I had to focus on other things and I could just focus on film. This was like one of those last couple of years I really had of you know, investing my time into movies and stuff. And I remember seeing a lot of the trailers for this film and it made it look so fucking interesting, like a black comedy with Jude Law and uh, uh, and Forrest Whitaker seemingly having great chemistry together in a film that's about repoing people's organs. This should be the shit. What's going what, like? Let's fucking go. Let's watch this movie. I didn't get a chance to see it in theaters, um, but like many films I watched in 2010, you know, Redbox watched it and i just find it funny that the two movies we've watched today are just basically forrest whitaker being the world's shittiest best friend because man (laughs) (laughs) this movie is like a fucked up spongebob episode like there's the episode of spongebob where he's like yo i'm gonna live with the jellyfish and then patrick is so brokenhearted over it that he's gonna literally try to catch him as if he's a jellyfish and force him into a jar that is literally Forrest Whitaker this entire fucking movie. <laughs> he is fucking psychotic. You know, if I'm going to get a live-action Patrick Starr, I think Forrest Whitaker's a pretty good bet. If we ever make yeah. that <laughs> unwise decision, I think that's a pretty good casting decision. I want to hear Forrest Whitaker say, but I thought we were special. <laughs> He'll win his second Oscar for Patrick Starr, I'm sure. Oh my god. Oh, dude, I hate me. Fuck this movie. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just like, Jude Law is just an asshole, and he is like, it's weird because it's like you know that sort of like bully and then becomes best friend dynamic is something that 
like there's interesting shit this movie could have like the story could have told you know and it could have just had the repo organs just be kind of like a background to it like you know about people who come back from war and don't know where they can apply their skills into real like everyday life and like the feeling of loneliness and not having like that true friendship and this film could have been like that friendship film but it doesn't know what the fuck it wants to be it wants to be like a statement on healthcare. it wants to be a buddy cop movie it wants to be a black comedy it wants to rip off like seven fucked up like crime movies like for one minute it's like it's old boy then it's repo the genetic opera you know then it's total recall and then it becomes brazil at the end especially and then it becomes then it becomes fucking brazil at the end yep. which is what pissed yep. me off when i watched it as a 19 year old and i'm still pissed off now as a 32 year old watching this film again this it, it's just i this the only thing i was like you know what man I'm glad my anger is still there when I see shitty fucking movies like this, because that's that's exactly what this is. But I, I there was so much potential. Jude Law and Forrest Whitaker are so fucking good together. Like they are perfect together. They're just two douchebags doing a douchebag job, which is repoing organs. And I wish they kind of just stuck to that. You know what I mean? Instead of trying to be like, felt like they have to make a statement on corporations or, you know, try to do like anything that had a message the minute this film stops being a black comedy is when it stops being fun and it's like 20 minutes into the movie well especially when like that stuff you're talking about i agree with you i think the first 20 minutes or so was kind of like oh this could be a bit like interesting as like a dark satirical movie about the fact that like our main character jude law is a guy who not only like does this repo job but kind of gets off on it which i found fascinating like him and whitaker literally are doing stuff like they're they're having a big like barbecue at Jude Law's house, and then it's like, oh shit, wait, uh, apparently like, well, I just scanned around, we're off duty, but I scanned around, that guy is is uh, behind on his payments, so let's go ahead and fuck with him. Like, this guy who's, like, driving the taxi nearby, and they, like, repo him very quickly while this, like, family barbecue's going on. That is the stuff I'm like, okay, this is fascinating, and even we were talking about, like, oh, if it's trying to make a statement on corporations, making that movie where that guy who's your main character is making a statement in an interesting way that still, like, is entertaining and fascinating, and I agree with you, like, the chemistry between Jude Law and Forrest Whitaker is definitely, like, oh, yeah, these are two people who should not be friends, but became friends because, like, they established it. It's like, oh, they met during, like, the war, and they kind of became best buddies, and it's like, they know probably in their heart of hearts, it's like, we're bad for each other, we bring out the worst in each other, but this guy's loyal to me. Like, we're buds, we can't not do that. Like, there's a whole bit where they go to the bar at one point, and... Forrest Whitaker talks about, like, you know what, man? I'd repo, you know, an organ from my grandma if I could. Don't tell her. But, I mean, I'd do it. You know? I'd, I'd fucking do it in a heartbeat. Like, that's a horrible, awful, shitty thing that anyone could say. But you get that chemistry with those two words. I see why they've be, had this friendship for so long. But I agree with you that, like, like specifically, it's all the stuff with once Alice Braga becomes a part of the movie as this woman who, when she was, like, a nightclub singer that Jude Law heard. And then, like... Him realizing, like, I don't even remember, like, how does he get a conscience in this fucking movie all of a sudden where he's like, oh, wait a minute, this is bad. I shouldn't do that. I think it's just, like, it's after his wife breaks up with him, basically. Then he just suddenly starts realizing, like, oh, wait, it's a bad thing I take organs. I shouldn't do that. And then, oh, this hot lady is, like, homeless now because she's trying to, you know, run away from, like, people who are trying to track down her organs. Oh, my God, what have I, oh, what have I been doing this whole time? It's like... I don't believe that for a fucking second, dude. <laughs> this is dumb. Yeah, it's like the movie decides, like, it's like after the first 20 minutes, the movie got fucking scared of itself. 
yeah. like literally scared of itself because it was like, well, maybe we're just being too mean and we're being too black of a comedy. And it's like, no, you didn't even like, you didn't even go past the fucking 10 yard line. You're still in your starting part of the field. You're still in your starting end zone of the fucking field. You haven't done anything. You moved up 10 yards. You've been stuck at the 10 yard line. And the last hour and a half is you like feeling bad that you went 10 yards upfield using shitty sports analogies here. But like, I don't know, like I just wish this film could have like instead of falling into like stupid pitfalls and ripping off better movies and taking advantage of its leads, it it decides to just do stupid shit like rip off fucking better movies and completely waste its leads. Even Alice Bragg is good in it. I buy Alice Bragg and Jude Law together as far as like being a couple. They have good chemistry. They have better chemistry than he has with the uh, actress who plays his wife. And, And I could almost buy him becoming like him getting a conscience because it's like he now has to deal with the fact that he has like an artificial organ it's like slowing him down to the point where he can't even do his job as effectively and i wish they would explore that as far as like him post having the issue with his heart having to get the heart transplant having it affect his performance as both a repo man and as a salesman they still kind of had an interesting thing they could have went there but no they just went with the whole like well He's going to have remorse now, and now he's going to slowly but surely uh, uh, rebel against the system. And I was just like, but you didn't even earn that. This is coward shit. What are we doing? Right, you're right. That's around the time where they start to like, where it's like, all of a sudden I'm affected, therefore I suddenly realize it. But even then earlier on, like the sequence where like he ends up getting that like fake organ because of like the accident he has with like the shocker and whatnot over Riza, who is like this guy who like uh, is a musician that he likes and it's like, Oh man, wow! I, I guess I gotta extract this from you, but I love your dope beats. Fucking Jude Law come out there with his tin tin ass hair, just like, oh, I love your sick beats, Rizza. We gotta like really collab here. Interesting. The Rizza Forrest Whitaker reunion, weirdly, despite the fact they don't share scenes at all in this movie, is <laughs> interesting. Uh, but yeah, that like that whole switch was just like oh, all of a sudden because I'm affected, I'm supposed to like. But you could even still go in like the dark comedy. That Alan Ward's like, oh no, I care about myself, but I don't have like empathy for other people. That's the problem. Is like when Alice Braga ends up becoming that, even if they have chemistry, it's still just such a dumb fucking turn where it's like, well, I can't be with my wife, uh, Melisandre from Game of Thrones. By the way, that's who that actress is. And oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, oh no, I can't be with her anymore because she's disgusted by my sick fascination with extracting organs from people. Women, am I right? Um, but then they try and do, like, that whole thing where it's like, oh, no, now I have empathy for Alice Braga, who has, like, several different, like, organs that she's had to replace, and now I feel bad because this hot lady who likes me now is, like, potentially gonna die because she's sang a song, which I love that, too, that it's, like, that, it's a song that, like, is, like, a very classic jazz standard, and he's like, has anyone heard this song before? It's like, Cry Me a River, right? It's that fucking song. And it's like, dude, yeah, everyone's heard that song. That's a very familiar fucking, like, jazz standard that anyone's heard at least once in their life. And he's just like, I've never heard this before. Like, sure, okay. Is this what love is like? No. (laughs) Is this what humans call love? Can I repo these feelings? No, but I... (laughs) Oh, my God. Why was this fucking cowardly piece of shit made? it's just like a man i wish they i would have rather have had them go down the road of making this a cruel ass movie 
where it's just about a guy. You could have made this a character study. You could have literally made it a character study of him going through the motions and dealing with shit that, you know, the people he was like literally uh, uh, collecting organs from would be going through. And it would have been interesting to have it as a character study of him trying to go through day to day life, like seeing his shit get affected, which is good because he's a piece of shit. So you kind of want to see him go through like the lowest of the low the lowest of the low is not collecting scrap metal and getting to fuck alice braga it's not there's and, and then having like old boy rip off hallway fight scenes with knives and shit like there's no there isn't <laughs> there's nothing i cared about this entire time and i was just like nothing nothing i cared about yeah we really need to address like so spoilers for this fucking old ass movie that you probably have not seen don't give a shit about everybody out there but as Tori's mentioning, like, after they go through a bunch of things where they try and go into the black market and they try and, like, get Alice Braga, like, new organs and stuff like that, they eventually get to, like, oh, we have to, like, do a face-off after a certain point where, like, Jude Law gets, like, knocked out and it's like, oh, you know what, I gotta, like, go back to the main source and then he has, like, this badass, like, hallway fight and he kills a bunch of people. Like, we have Schreiber, who's his boss, and, like, a bunch of other people down this hallway and then the whole twist is like, oh, he has his happy ending, and he gets to, like, leave with uh, Alice Braga and Forrest Whitaker. They, like, all go off to, like, this fancy island. And then it turns out, oh, wait, no, this was actually a twist, uh, because earlier on they had established this, like, new technology about, like, oh, you can put this memory in your head where you think you're living in paradise for forever, and it's just like you're, like, in a permanent coma. And that's what Forrest Whitaker has done for Jude Law after he basically, like, knocks him out, like, earlier in the movie. So the last, like, 30 minutes or so of this movie is actually a big dream that's going on. And, like I mentioned before, it's such a rip of Brazil, but also, like, the key difference with, like, Brazil, where they have that kind of ending, is, like, the movie prior to, like, that sort of turn is actually, like, a very upsetting, dark, like, not Hollywood movie whatsoever, and then the Hollywood ending happens, and you're like, oh my god, like this is taking a turn for the weird, and this doesn't really make sense with like what happened earlier, and it's because, oh, this is a fantasy. As opposed to, pretty much everything after the first 20 minutes of this movie is Hollywood pablum bullshit. Like, just, oh my god, we gotta like, get out of here, like, me and Alice Braga, we're gonna face off against the world, and my buddy Forrest Whitaker might capture me, oh no, what's gonna happen? And, uh, yeah, so that makes all that shit near the end where it's like, oh, it's a bit more over the top than what we'd seen before, but it doesn't actually work with, like, the way you made this film prior at all. Like I said before, this movie should have stayed mean. If this movie stayed mean, made it a character study, made it hard about him being able to carry on his job, and then, like, the ending is, like, him harvesting all of Alice Braga's organs for one big score so he can get back in the good graces of his company, I would have rather have had that shit happen than, like, the fucking ending to Brain Candy. Like, like I would have, I would have rather have had that. I would have rather have had like, you know, more than like literally Brazil brain candy, all these type of movies or whatever. I would have rather have had like a Henry portion of a serial killer ripoff, which would have fit this movie and fit these actors and fit this like a uh, 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 chemistry a fuck ton better than trying to be like every other good sci-fi film at the time, which is what this fucking movie does. And it's just, it's just a waste. Like, it's a waste for, like, this kind of black comedy the same way that, like, uh, a law-abiding citizen is a waste for the crime drama or for, like, the legal procedure drama or whatever. It could have been something, but it decided to just go for the half-assed Hollywood route. 
like almost like as like a safety blanket, if you will. And it's just it's fucking disappointing because this could have been a, a real there's a there's I feel like there's a really good movie and a really good idea here. And they just fucking squandered it. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like Reaper the Genetic Opera, like I don't necessarily agree with people who say like, oh, this is a ripoff. I think just because yeah. it feels more like parallel thinking with that particular concept. Like even there was a point where they're watching the Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, which has literally like that whole sketch which John Cleese and Graham Chapman, like, can we have your liver? <laughs> and they, like, harvest it out of Terry Gilliam's fucking body while he's living. So, like, yeah. this this idea isn't 100% original necessarily, even before Repo. But, like, at least with, like, a Repo the Genetic Opera, which is, like, a much lower budget movie and a much more, like, sort of, like you mentioned, it's a meaner movie. And it's also, like, this big, like, elaborate Rocky Horror-style, like, horror musical element. Like, that's a movie that sticks to its convictions, no matter how, like, kind of inept it could be sometimes like the production of it it still feels like oh it wants to like really commit to like this very gory very over-the-top operatic conceit of like these people who like harvest organs and then like the, how that affects like people around them this weird succession thing about the main person who runs the company and shit like that but this movie yeah it just feels like it, it definitely is like this basic concept that sounds like it could be daring and interesting and kind of is for the first 20 minutes just becomes really like dull forgettable pablum that's really a bummer considering everybody here including like i'm curious uh with jude law we've talked about this many times on the show that jude law kind of feels like a guy where he was put constantly in sort of like starring roles in big movies and this feels like one of the last examples of that to me because he really just feels more like a very handsome character actor he's so much better in like supporting roles as opposed to being like the lead would you agree with that in general with jude law I've always been like back and forth or I guess you could say fickle when it comes to Jude Law because like, you know, he's great in movies like Road to Perdition, but then he gives you shit like Alfie because I think even this year, it was 2010, I think he was in Dr. Parnassus, right? Wasn't he one of like the transformations uh, post Heath Ledger's death in that movie? Because it was him, fucking uh, uh, Johnny Depp. And Colin Farrell, right? And yes. Colin Farrell, yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's not like, you know, him being a character actor isn't something out of the ordinary. I mean, I think after Alfie, everyone kind of knew what he was. Because it was particularly that 2004, where it was like, it was Alfie, Sky Captain. Which I love. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, he did like six different fucking movies in 2004, where they tried to make him like, you're the new hotness, you're the biggest guy, as opposed to, like, I agree with you that like the roles that made him work are like Road to Perdition or AI, I love him as like Gigolo Joe, pe stuff like that, where he's yep. a supporting character and he's amazing at it. He's just like, it's that trouble where it's like, oh no, you have the handsome face, so we have to make you the lead. It's like, no, man, that's not what he works as. And I think he's gotten more into kind of like, yeah, if I'm going to be the lead, it's going to be in something a bit weirder and a bit more off center, as opposed to, you know, like this, where it feels like, Oh, we got, you know, it's a, you know, a $30 million budget movie back when Hollywood made those. So now we got to like, have you be like the star and we have to like market the whole movie around you. It's like, nah, man, he doesn't need to be that. So what you're saying is we need to make a sky captain sequel. Uh, I mean, you know, you could probably make a, a similar comparable looking movie at this point on your home computer with that. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. This one, uh, it's a bummer also considering Miguel Sapochnik is actually a pretty interesting director in terms of like, he's mostly known more for television at this point because he's a guy who's directed like uh, a lot of Game of Thrones, like particularly some of the bigger episodes that people are aware of with Game of Thrones. Um, but also like a, a bunch of other things like House of the Dragon recently, um, Master of Sex, True Detective, like, he's a guy who's, like, very accomplished in television, but he's only done this 
And then the next movie he did was fairly recently that one Tom Hanks movie where he builds a robot companion in the post-apocalypse, Finch. Were you aware this movie existed? I'm a, I, I wasn't aware until I looked at his filmography because I was like, what other movies did this guy do? Because I could see something of a vision when I'm watching Repo Men. And then I saw this movie called Finch and it was like an Apple original. I was like, well, no wonder I don't watch any of the right. Apple. I'm not something. That oh, that's why it doesn't exist. It was released on a streaming service. You had no one really fucking subscribes to unless they watch <laughs> the lasso. Like that's it. Exactly. And I've never been, I've never been a game of Thrones guy. Like I, I've seen some episodes or whatever. I mean, I think I might've seen, I, you know what? I did see the battle of the bastards episode, right? That's the big one. He did was the battle of the bastards one, which is a really good, piece of television fair enough you know what i mean but uh but other than that like no it's just like um i mean how is did, did you see finch or whatever it's called no i didn't see finch i have okay. apple plus and i haven't seen finch <laughs> <laughs> the punchline to this whole thing <laughs> but uh but yeah no um it, it's just interesting to me because like i mean this guy's obviously made great television and he's only really got the director shot twice again like my anger when it comes to this movie comes from just like the potential squandered i don't even know if it's his fault like i mean as far as i'm concerned this could be this as a result of studio meddling which makes sense considering the multitude of directions that this film seems to go but never really wants to commit to though i am surprised at the same time like a studio would allow even like that ending to happen because the movie almost feels like it's kind of commenting. It's trying to do like what Brazil did, where it's just like, oh, we're going to make this seem like a big Hollywood happy ending. But then it turns out we have the subversion here. It almost feels like the studio ignored the bookends of the movie, where it's just like, oh, yeah, sure, the first 20 minutes, whatever. Yeah, last 30 minutes, whatever. We have to focus on this middle chunk where this guy's unlikable. <laughs> so then I guess we're supposed to feel bad when he ends up being in a, like a permanent coma or whatever. It's like, no. I don't feel bad for that guy. Fuck him. <laughs> no, he's an asshole. But I mean, like, I really wish they would have given him an ending worthy of a guy who is an asshole that would have led to like, you know, that would have given like a journey. You know what I mean? I'd rather have a film about a guy who's an asshole who gets down on his luck and then gets back to where he is, which is being an asshole. Yeah, instead of him being saved by uh, the leader of the resistance played by Yvette Nicole Brown, which was like, whoa, wait, surely. Out of what fucking nowhere. Here? Out of fucking nowhere, <laughs> by the way. I was just like, I, I mean, I'm glad you got. Yeah, fine, fine. I'll give the you gave me a little bit more. Uh, uh, give me a second wind, if you will, or at least a quarter of a second wind. I do find it funny that this is the second, though, because we, we, we got to mention our guy, you know, go to go back to the spawn episode. We got to mention the man himself, the John Leguizamo appearance. That means nothing, but it's still John Leguizamo. He's not eating any maggot pizza. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm curious about this because the big thing with uh, Leguizamo is I don't think he's in the cut I saw, which was the like regular cut. I believe he's in the unrated cut. That's like about eight minutes longer because when I watched it, he was not in there at all. I saw he was in this movie. I'm like, oh, I guess we'll see Leguizamo for a scene. I did not see him. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But the one I got off when I saw this back when I was back in 2010 was the unrated cut that they had on every like red box. You could find this movie at because red box was promoting the shit out of this movie when they finally got their hands on it. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. It's like literally his whole thing is that he's shown there to like, he's supposed to like help Alice Braga's character. Cause like, he's someone that, you know, she used to have a thing with or whatever. And um, he tells him to go to, you know, the, the surgeon, you know, the two surgeons that have the same name and it's like a 10 year old performing surgeon, which is actually, a fun scene, I gotta say. Yeah, that's say. one of the funner things. I agree. That feels like the, the most in, sort of like the black comedy element of it. It's like this little girl who like starts, who's like very 
uh, good at like removing organs and she's like and she like literally gets an organ down and she's like yay i'm like that's kind yeah. of fun where was <laughs> exactly. this it's like it feels that's that's where i was like oh we're getting that total recall feeling back and it kind of works here like when they're doing the surgery and i was just like this is this is fucking cool i like this here but that's the lead into the fight where whitaker like knocks uh, july out it's because they go back to his apartment and they find his organs completely like repoed and that's because he he owed money too or owed, you know shit and force whitaker came in and just repoed the fuck out of him so he's 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 a plot device again <laughs> we were talking about plot devices earlier he's just a plot device so yeah. but but I guess before we close out i am curious like what do you think sort of works for um whitaker here where like it definitely feels like he's kind of like third build but he doesn't have like a lot of screen time but do you think he sort of makes the most out of even like a lesser movie like this absolutely because i mean the thing that i buy it throughout this entire movie is that he loves being this guy's best friend even though like you said before they're fucking bad for each other that ending scene the thing that i do like about it is the fact that he is indeed filled with sorrow that he is essentially killed the quality of life for his best friend from a thing that was ultimately his big plan to keep his best friend his plan to keep his best friend fucking failed and that's sad that's like a really sad fucking thing even for a psychopaths like those two you know and i and i buy the and i was like i kind of sat there the whole time and i was just like huh you know it's a damn shame they couldn't uh you know just did the thing together did the heist together but then again you know you wouldn't get the whole like shitty subplot of jude law trying to you know redeem himself or whatever the fuck this movie was trying to tell me but as far as whitaker's performance himself he's one half of like the great leads that this film has because like i said i buy that they're best friends i believe that they're best friends and i believe that he wants to stay his best friend in this line of work and um that's the one thing the one positive that i'll take away from that ending immediately he knows that he he done fucked up he doesn't have his friend anymore and he's gonna have to you know like in the show cowboy bebop he's gonna have to carry that weight and that came through clear through a shitty ending but you know it came through clear nonetheless yeah it's a real testament to like Whitaker's um abilities as an actor especially that like he can make such a like nothing character actually have a lot more of that pathos that you're talking about even as like they're going around doing like the the real cd shit like they go around they spot that one guy who's like eating a hot dog and it's like hey you better pay your stuff by like uh you know in two days or else we're gonna get you and it's like, oh, yeah, um, I, it, the check's in the mail. Like, sure, buddy. Sure it is. Like, he feels authentic. I'm like, oh, like, he's embodying perfectly, like, the asshole kind of cop character. Which I think that's the thing. Is like, oh, when this movie tries to, like, kind of differentiate itself from, like, where it's like, oh, we're going to do something different with, like, this sci-fi, satirical, dark comedy conceit. And it's like, I don't know, this feels more like a generic cop movie than it does, like, an interesting satire, which I think is, like, the biggest bummer. And I think Whitaker tries his best within that. Even Jude Law does. Like, this cast is, like, not you know, sleeping through it necessarily, uh, but they can't really do much. And those are my final thoughts. And listen, Tori, do you have anything to add as final thoughts for Repo Men? No, not really. Um, anybody who thinks that this movie, and I have, I have seen some of your letterbox reviews, people, and I have seen these YouTube clips of you people claiming that this is some deep, profound fucking movie that Hollywood uh, was keeping under wraps or under the hatchet. No, this was Hollywood. This was 2010. This was a Hollywood sci-fi film in 2010, try, not trying to be deep, but it was trite. Okay, don't fucking defend this. How dare you fucking try to defend this film as this like underrated cult that like could be cult classic. It doesn't deserve to be a cult classic. It deserves to be shat upon because it's a piece of shit and a waste of time. 
yeah that's that's the big thing is like (laughs) that's the big thing is like whenever because like there's this this sort of continued like i'm i'm very much like i support at least the idea of this where it's like oh i want to return to a point where like hollywood would make 30 million dollar budget movies like this because like the 30 million dollar budget is kind of like wasted away as hollywood has gone either for we have to have a 200 million dollar giant blockbuster or we can do like five million or below budget, like Blumhouse, very small budget movie that we know will make money. As opposed to, I don't know if we spend more than that, it's not going to really like work out. And like I want to like go back to that kind of period, but at the same time, going back and seeing like you know a decade plus later, like oh this like small movie that like it wasn't a big blockbuster, so you all didn't see it. It's like uh no, I think people didn't see it because as it turns out, uh, it was pretty fucking bad. I think, if anything, these are the kind of movies that killed that kind of, like, fun, middle, mid-budget genre movie that Hollywood used to make. Kind of, these movies are like, oh, these are, like, not leaving any kind of blip on the radar, so just kind of, like, a waste of time and money for the studio. So, like, oh, we can't do any more of these. It feels like it's kind of, like, one of those examples where it just feels like, yeah, if anything, this is one of the problems, where it's like, if you're going to make one of these $30 million movies again, if we want to have more of those we got to make them at least, like, fun and interesting. Not the best movie ever made, but just, like, kind of fun and junky, but in a way that at least kind of, like, has some personality and is interesting, as opposed to, like, this very much dreck, and I agree with you, it's uh, fucking bad, <laughs> for sure. To the people out there that, like, want to hold this film on a fucking pedestal, want to watch a $30 million movie that actually gave me false hope as a fan around this time? District fucking nine. Watch District 9. That's your right. $30 million film that got Oscar nominated, shoved its foot right up the ass of Hollywood with all the big budgeted bullshit that was coming out of 2009. This film came out of nowhere. It was a, it was, a, it was, it, that's the movie. That's, that's the film, the film to have your kind of your rebellious front as far as putting something on a pedestal to say fuck Hollywood too. Or even like if you want to do that with like a movie that's out like now that you could support if it's like still in like a local theater to you, Bo is Afraid. That's a $35 million budget movie that is very much like an anti-mainstream movie on every single regard, and it's amazing, and I loved it. And that's like a true, like, giant middle finger to, like, whatever you think, like, Hollywood perception is. That's an amazing movie. So go, like, support that instead of just being like, remember Repo Men, though? That was cool. It's like, no. Fuck that. Go see the Ari Aster movie. <laughs> Do that instead. One of the people was like, oh, this was a deep statement on the healthcare. I was like, Saw 6 came out, like, not even six months before. And that was a yeah. Movie that that actually is a much better statement on healthcare for sure, <laughs> <Exactly>. genuinely, hundred <laughs> percent. But you know, let's get into the weekly segment, the double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double 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 redo. So the Devil Redo is a segment that Adam and I usually do in which uh, we recommend one good movie and then dissuade you from one bad movie related to the topic. Uh, I have two options and so does Tori. And so we'll uh, go ahead and uh, I'll start off here uh, with my two for Forrest Whitaker where uh, my good pick is um, a movie that I hadn't seen until fairly recently but I thought was pretty great. It's called A Rage in Harlem from director Bill Duke, yes, Bill Duke of uh, Predator fame, amongst other things, the actor, has a very robust directorial career. I recently talked about Deep Cover on the segment, like, about a month ago. We did a Lawrence Fishburne episode, and um, I've I've only seen, like, this one and Deep Cover, and I'm starting to realize, like, oh, yeah, Bill Duke's kind of, like, a very underrated director, because basically, A Rage in Harlem, um, it takes place in uh, 1920s, era Harlem, um, and uh, we mainly, uh, we initially focus on, like, this group of gangsters 
Uh, it's a mostly a black cast, and it's like this group of black gangsters in the middle of like a big deal, and all of a sudden uh, the cops storm in and start shooting up the place, their little like hideout, and so everyone starts running around, including uh, Robin Gibbons, who uh, plays this gangster's mall of a woman character, um, who ends up like vacating the premises over to Harlem uh, because she's looking for this gold trunk that's in one of the apartments down there in Harlem, and along the way she ends up running into Forrest Whitaker, who plays this morgue attendant who's very, like, sort of religious and very, like, soft-spoken, very nerdy, and uh, ends up, you know, shacking up with him as a way to kind of get into his apartment building so that she can end up stealing that big gold trunk. It's really not available to stream, and it's such a bummer because I think this movie is kind of amazing. I think it's it has some issues where you can tell that the original script was trying to be a bit more comedic, in tone, and I think it doesn't, like, the comedic stuff kind of works, but I don't think it's, like, nearly as interesting as, like, when it just becomes, like, a really fascinating sort of, like, noir crime movie that's, like, so fascinating to watch, especially with Whitaker, who I think is, like, the best of the comedic stuff, because he literally was, like, very nerdy, very nebbishy, shy, and just, like, oh, I, I want to trust in Jesus and everything, but the moment Robin Givens uh, comes into his life, and uh, they have an amazing very weird sex scene in which you literally see like a one whole shot of like Robin Givens like all like from her head all the way down to her bare ass and then Forrest Whitaker licks one of her cheeks it's kind of sexy but it's also just bizarre and weird but kind of awesome and the thing is it's got an amazing stack cast besides like you got Givens and Whitaker but also Gregory Hines is in here you got Danny Glover uh, Zakes Moke, who was uh, the guy in uh, The Serpent in the Rainbow. T.K. Carter, very young Wendell Pierce shows up. Um, George Wallace even shows up, the comedian, at a certain point. It's very well directed, very stylish. There's a lot of great like chase scenes and shootout scenes, and just the style of it, it looks so immersed in like that 20s era sort of gang. Oh, I'm sorry, it's actually 50s. I should have, I'm mistaken. I apologize. It's a 50s era, and it, it feels like so wonderful. And just, like I said, it's a very underrated masterpiece I would recommend to anybody out there. Uh, and then my bad pick is a movie that Whitaker doesn't have, like, a huge role in, but it kind of feels indicative of a lot of the movies he was doing around, like, this 90s period, where he would just pop up in, like, a sixth lead, basically, in, you know, this movie that often starred a bunch of white people who weren't that interesting. It was sadly, like, a sort of token character. And in this case, I have Consenting Adults, which mainly follows uh, Kevin Klein who plays this guy who is very much like a typical 90s yuppie, where he, like, writes music for commercial jingles, and he ends up, you know, he's living this life with his uh, wife, uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastronio. Apologies, I always fuck up that name. Um, They're having a fun time in, you know, suburbia with their daughter. But uh, a new neighbor moves in, um, who's another reason why I'd recommend you not watch this movie, uh, played by Kevin Spacey. That's right. They become friends, him and Kevin Klein, and it's like, you know, oh, we're going to, like, run together, we'll uh, go to bars together, we'll hang out at each other's houses, and Kevin Spacey is, like, very weird and aggressive. Like, there's a whole scene where he commits insurance fraud and gets, like, run over by a car, <laughs> and then he's just like, oh, guess what? I'm fine. I didn't actually get hurt by that car. It's all cool. I just wanted the insurance money, uh, but we're still bros, right? It's like, yeah, I guess, dude, sure, whatever, um, but at a certain point, he suggests to Kevin Klein, hey, you know what would be really fun? What if we uh, swapped wives, but we're not even, like, swinging in, like, that intentional way. Uh, what we're going to do is I want you to sneak into my house and lie next to my wife in our bed. And I want you to, like, kind of 
in a half awake state fuck her while she doesn't know and i'm gonna do the same thing with your wife and kevin klein's like yeah sure let's do that um and he ends up going along with that and goes up you know into kevin spacey's house and everything and then the next morning uh he realizes that uh kevin spacey's wife has been murdered and he's charged with murder and it's like, oh my god, how's he gonna get out of this situation? His wife, div- you know, wants to divorce him, and she ends up hooking up with Kevin Spacey. And Forrest Whitaker plays like the detective who's trying to get him like out of jail. Um, but the big problem is like, I don't know, the '90s were, I guess, a different time. But I think anyone in the '90s would also think like, hey, uh, Kevin Klein, uh, how about you stay in jail with your intentions of like, yeah, I'm gonna go along with this weird conceit of I'm gonna go up to this woman while she's asleep and have sex with her without her realizing that I'm not her husband. Like, you went in with that perception, even though Kevin Spacey ended up framing you for murder. Uh, you're still awful. And really, like, I don't want to, like, fucking follow you, dude. And I love Kevin Klein. It's very, like, much like a Hollywood pictures kind of era movie where it's, like, it's junky. It looks good. It's actually, it's directed by Alan J. Pakula, who's a guy who's more famous for directing, like, All the President's Men and Clute and the Parallax view, like, some of the great 70s paranoia thrillers. Um, and this is one of his last movies, and it's, like, a really junky, bad, like, sort of era, you know, post-Fatal Attraction, those kind of, like, uh, yuppie uh, thrillers that were around all the time. Uh, and this is one of the worst examples of it. And also that waste Forrest Whitaker, who just kind of comes in for, like, two or three scenes, just being like, hey, Kevin Klein, this is really suspicious. I'm going to get you cleared. Yeah, sure. Sure, Forrest, you can do that. But I would not recommend consenting adults by any stretch. I mean, you, you know, consenting adults, Kevin Spacey. I mean, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm kind of intrigued to see it. You know, like, like I, you, you've probably told me before about my morbid curiosity for these kind of films. So, yeah. I mean, I want to emphasize that movie's also very boring, despite what I said. After, like, the weird setup, it's just kind of like, I don't even give a shit what's going on here. <laughs> uh, but, Tori, what about your choices for the double redo? Okay, for the double redo, for the good, I have a film here that I feel like uh, is underrated, doesn't get talked about a lot amazing cast um so it's directed by doug McHenry. now doug McHenry and uh the late gerald jackson were responsible for producing a lot of black cinema like new jack city a thin line between love and hate the house party movies crush groove and uh they also produced and McHenry directed this movie here called jason's lyric um which i mentioned a little bit before in the episode um this stars alan payne jada pinkett Bokeem Woodbine, Treach from Naughty by Nature, Eddie Griffin, and of course, Forrest Whitaker. It's kind of like this weird, romantic, psychological, but also weirdly erotic kind of uh, a film where it's based on two brothers who are dealing with the childhood trauma of their abusive alcoholic father, uh, Mad Dog, portrayed by uh, Forrest Whitaker. And uh, Bokeem Woodbine plays the younger brother who is in more of the destructive path as far as his life and dealing with his trauma, as opposed to the older brother portrayed by Alan Payne, who's in, you know, the show House of Pain, who is a very responsible uh, young black man in uh, the third ward of Houston, Texas, and feels that he can't move on with his life with the love of his life played by Jada Pinkett Smith because he's still kind of tied to a feeling of responsibility to both his mother and his brother because of unfortunate uh, uh, trauma at the hands of their father. And it's a very interesting film of how it deals with trauma. The performances are really good too. Um, and it's especially Bokeem Woodbine who steals the show. And obviously Forrest Whitaker 
but Forrest Whitaker is, you know, in the beginning of the movie, he's um he's more of like the this the catalyst or the start for like all the events that happen. Excellent, very underrated movie from the 90s. Doesn't get enough uh props because I never even hear people really talking about it outside of you know black cinema circles. So that would be my good, my bad, and you know, I, I it's hard as far as like picking a bad Forrest Whitaker film that obviously isn't repo man. But uh, I hate the film Phenomenon from 1997 with John Travolta. That to me counts as a bad Forrest Whitaker movie. I know he's not like in top building necessarily, but I I don't know. That film is like just the epitome of schmaltz. It's just a dumb fantasy film. I never was, I never liked it as a kid and I still don't like it now as an adult. I know it was like this big super success, but I don't know. Yeah, it's just it's just boring to me. It's just a bad overall movie to me. So that's that's what I would give to Forrest Whitaker. Uh, yeah, I have not seen either of your picks. I hadn't even honestly heard of uh, the Jason lyrics until um, you were talking about it, really. And that sounds fascinating. I'd be curious to see it. And Phenomenon is a weird one where, like, I'm vaguely aware of that movie, but I always get confused with the other 1996 John Travolta kind of supernatural movie, Michael, where he plays an angel. Oh, the angel and one? I know, yeah. <laughs> right, and because the other one, the phenomenon, is like he ends up getting, like, telekinetic powers, right? Yeah, he has telekinetic powers, yeah, as a result of, like, a brain injury or a brain aneurysm or something like that. Right, so it's like flowers for Algernon, but with Carrie, which is interesting given the Travolta of it all as well yeah. on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I just want to shout out, uh, Adam had picked some uh, double reduced choices that uh, we didn't end up, um, you know, obviously he wasn't here for this, but I do just want to shout out what he had wanted to pick for uh, good and bad uh, was his good choice was Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, which we've talked about on the show before, an amazing movie that I completely support. I love that fucking movie. And then his yeah. bad pick was Bad of Little Dearth, uh, which we've also covered on the show. And um, is I think also interesting considering it kind of also, it's another John Travolta Force Whitaker collab, um, and also is kind of like another like sort of weird toxic friend thing with like him and Travolta as the fucking uh, the turtle and the other guy. The I forgot those fucking species, whatever that dumb thing is. But yeah, uh, those were his choices as well, and I think uh, those are so. Especially, I love Ghost Dog. I rewatched it recently because I got that Criterion Blu-ray, and uh, that movie it's it's become like one of my favorite movies. Movie fucking rules. Oh, yeah, I mean, I remember thinking it was the coolest shit as a kid because they used um, a lot of the promotion was used with like uh, they had a lot of trailer commercials out where like Rizzo was kind of leading the charge on it as far as like him like uh, promoting the movie because um, I'm not sure if he had he had done like the score for it or if he was responsible for the soundtrack. It was so long he like ago. was the soundtrack producer on that. So he put together a lot of the songs that were on there. Yeah, exactly. And he was doing a lot of like, I remember watching like old episodes of Rap City in the basement or Rap City where he was like promoting the movie. And it's so, ah, dude, it's so good. And it's like, I feel like it was just not appreciated at the time, but I'm glad that it has like this status, this, this like cult status. And even people at the time who appreciate it. I remember even Ebert really appreciating and singing high of its praises. So there were definitely people who were like, you know, putting it out there, but what a classic of a movie. For sure. For sure. Uh, but let's repeat our titles for anybody out there in case you want to, you know, add some to your watch list or remove some. Um, the good pick that I had uh, was a rage in Harlem. And the bad pick I had was Consenting Adults. And then Adam's good pick was Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. And his bad pick was uh, Battlefield Earth. And for my good pick, Jason's Lyric. And for my bad pick, 
1996 film Phenomenon. Yes, and uh, thank you all uh, for listening here. Um, we want to, you know, thank some other people before we announce at the end of this episode, we're going to be uh, revealing what our choices are for next week and everything, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but first, we got to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water, night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, for all sorts of stuff that he has, uh, you know, on various socials. And thanks, of course, to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash uh, who, you know, ended up voting for this particular episode's topic. So thank you all. We really appreciate that. And also, uh, you'll be getting a bonus podcast here. I think it should be out by the time this episode's been released. Uh, our one for April that would have come out just in time. Our top 10 So Bad They're Good movies. Adam and I recorded that. Had a lot of fun. Um, we really appreciate, you know, patrons for that $1 you've helping to support us for all these years on the show. And, of course, we want to thank our guest, Tori. Thank you so much for coming in at a pinch. Always appreciate love having you on the show. Hey, completely honored to be in, uh, be part of the show whenever I can, so thank you. And for more of us, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as at DEDBpod. And also you can uh, submit feedback to us, uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Or you can submit, like, on, you know, those uh, various different socials and stuff. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Not the Who's Tommy. I also do some writing at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and Film-Cred.com. And follow Adam. Uh, he's on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And uh, he's Swanson on Letterboxd. It's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And, uh, you know, to follow us and listen to, like, so much of our, uh, what we've recorded over the last, you know, several years, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on the network. And uh, you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for, like, you know, over 200 episodes, even before we joined Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't, you know, support us uh, on the Patreon, the $1 can be tight, we, we understand. It really helps out if you just rate, review, or simply share the show around so it gives us more visibility. And uh, now, you know, usually at the end of episodes, uh, we end up uh, picking randomly a good and a bad pick. And we would usually have Tori picking number between 1 and 10 for them. Um, but we're going to do something a bit different here at the end of this episode. Because um, we initially announced we were going to do a special edition sort of topic as our uh, fifth anniversary topic. Um, but things have changed a bit. Uh, where we are going to cover at least one movie we've covered before on the show. That was the plan with special edition, uh, we were going to do, uh, you know, a good movie uh, that we would have picked here, and then also Tango and Cash. Um, but some recent events have kind of changed things, where one, Tango and Cash, we're still going to cover because the patrons voted for it uh, on our Patreon. We're going to be doing a commentary in May for that, um, and I, so we'll end up doing that. Um, but we ended up deciding, like, you know what, um, we're going to forego a topic, even doing a bad pick, uh, because, um, you know, this interesting Tori doesn't even know this, um, the next episode of Double Edge Double Bill is going to be the last one. I'm not joking here, not doing anything like that. Uh, Adam and I kind of came to the mutual decision to have our fifth anniversary big blowout. Um, we're going to end the show there. There will be more explanation on the particular episode. Stay tuned for next week. Um, but it's going to be our big final blowout. And we decided, like, you know what? Let's just do two picks we really love. So uh, we're going to end up doing Heat, which we have done before on the show. And that's one of Adam's favorite movies. And then we're going to do probably my favorite movie of all time. I've talked about many times on the show. And, you know, given the last episode, I wanted to finally cover Little Shop of Horrors 1986. So we're going to be covering both those movies. We're going to be having a lot of fun. And as I mentioned, ending the show on that particular note. 
Well, um, that, took me <laughs> that took me aback there. Shit. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, I didn't tell Tori about this before. I kind of hinted that something was going to be revealed. Like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sorry I sprung this on you. But you know what? You were a very gracious last guest host, Tori. I really appreciate it. I loved every single time I was a guest host on the show the last five years. Um, I'm glad to have had the friendship with you the last like it's god man what decade and a half of my life at this point and then yeah, meeting adam awesome. yeah i know i mean meeting of course through you meeting adam um and every time i was on the show i always had the most fun you know and it, it's it's weird because i always feel like every episode i was on i always got i always felt like i got more comfortable it was a lot you know more confident you know speaking about movies or just having you know these chats if you will and um yeah i I was I'm honored that I was always a guest on the show, and uh, I'm always going to be thankful for that. Yeah, um, I'll say this much: uh, stay tuned for the next episode. We will at least be talking about. Um, it's not necessarily going to be the end of a podcast on this feed, to some degree, um, but it will be at least the last one of sort of the double edged double bill duo, as it were, uh, doing the show. We'll explain more next week uh, when we cover, like I said, Heat and the 1986 version of Little Shop of Horrors. We'll be wrapping things up for this particular show um, and just stay tuned. We'll be discussing more of our plans next time on that. But until then, everybody, we just recommend you keep all your organs intact for next week.